Hi, I'm Nick Birch. And I'm Clint. And you're here at the Gorilla Filmmakers Lounge. And today we are joined by none other than uh, Planet 5D's own Mitch and No Film School's own Ryan Koo. And we are talking to them today for a variety of reasons. They're both uh, filmmakers, bloggers extraordinaire, and but more importantly, uh, for us anyway, they're both uh, have lended their time to us to be uh, Guerrilla Film Challenge judges, which we're super excited about. Thanks I'm for having I'm excited too. So uh, Mitch, why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit about you and your background and uh, what kind of stuff you're working on and where people can find you. Boy, that's a loaded question, and and we only have two hours, right? <laughs> I am Plant Mitch from Plant5D.com, and my my real background is that I'm an IT guy. I worked in uh, large corporations for 35 years. Was laid off two years ago. Happened to be running a blog uh, at the time, and now I've turned Plant5D into my full time job. Uh, I'm recently uh, shot a 5D Mark III short with a good friend of mine by the name of Barry Anderson, so I'm pretty excited about that. We we were hoping to release that a week or two ago, but we've spent so much time working on editing and audio and everything else that uh, that's got a bit of a delay to it. So, but that that'll be coming out next week, two weeks, somewhere. In there? <sighs> you know, I have I have said it's going to come years? out next week. Uh, about 15 times, so I'm not sure when it's coming out. We're, we're actually sort of also waiting on an additional sponsor that uh, has approached us. Uh, they've seen the movie, and they're, they're very interested in it, so that's pretty cool. So we're kind of also sort of waiting on them to finally say, yes, we want to be in. Now, is this something that um, – did you do any uh, crowdsource funding or anything like that? Or you, you mentioned sponsors. I mean, what was the uh – uh, in terms of putting it together from a financial standpoint? We decided uh, right after Barry and I saw the 5D Mark III at Canon uh, the week before it was announced, so we had a little bit of a preview. And we also knew that uh, Canon had told us that nobody else that they were aware of was doing a 5D Mark III short. They hadn't commissioned anybody to do one and so we decided we were going to crank this sucker out and our original goal which is why i was laughing about the date was that we wanted to have it out two weeks before nab well here it is a week and a half two weeks after i guess it's a week i don't i'm so lost in terms of my dates i don't know what's going on anymore but so it's it's been delayed but we didn't have time to do crowdsourcing uh, so we used some of my background with sponsors for Planet 5D, and we approached many of them and said, hey, well, look, we're doing this project, and would you be interested in kicking in a few bucks? So we ended up getting a couple of sponsors that way. Very nice. Awesome. And, and I don't want to cut you off there, but I want to go ahead and introduce Ryan as well. So, uh, Ryan, why don't you go ahead and give us your background and a little bit about yourself? Ryan, are you there? <laughs> Put him to sleep. <laughs> Oh, sorry. Sorry. Sorry about that. I had my mic on mute here. Um, well, first of all, Mitch, imagine if you only had 48 hours to do that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so, yeah, uh, that's a good talking point because filmmaking is hard. And uh, <laughs> I've been on sort of a long journey from uh, just – I did a web series in 2007, 2008 called The West Side, which was an urban western and as a result, got an agent and tried to just jump headfirst into larger projects with other people's money. And uh, always, that, always the best kind. Right. Which, you know, easier said than done. And um, 
you know, 50 something meetings and conference calls and attachments and all these things later, I realized that, you know, going from DIY filmmaking to uh, filmmaking as a, as a career and as a paid gig can often, you know, you could spend years taking meetings and having a project in development or projects in development and never actually uh, getting something made. So I sort of wanted to come back to the DIY approach because um, I felt like I had my foot a little bit in the door, but because we had done something that was so no budget, people weren't necessarily, you know, falling over themselves to, to throw money at us. So, uh, so that's when I, I sort of launched No Film School as this site that would cover the latest in DIY filmmaking tools, but also the site that would sort of tell my story and chart, uh, you know, a place that I could share the things that I learned the hard way and um, sort of have a, the backbone of the site being this uh, a filmmaker trying to make it via DIY methods. So that's kind of where I am now. I have a project called Manchild, which is a, a movie about a 13-year-old basketball player as the this crazy world of youth basketball recruiting sort of descends on his life. And I ran a Kickstarter campaign for that. And, uh, you know, largely thanks to the audience at No Film School, I uh, was able to raise 125000 And now I am still working on that script, but meeting with producers and trying to figure out if we could make it for that and when we could shoot it and how to shoot it and all those sorts of things. And that's where I am now. That is awesome, both of you guys. I mean, just to get out there, I mean, that's sort of, you know, you touched on it, just how hard filmmaking is in general. That's one of the things about the GFC that, you know, sort of inspired us to get this whole thing off the ground was just the idea of taking an idea and putting it into action creating something rather than just talking about it that is what separates people that do this from people that talk about doing this and so with the gfc we kind of wanted to come up with a structure that would sort of force people to do it over a weekend because you know we figure everybody's got a weekend you may as well be making a movie and i think that there's something to be said for that uh with regard to what you were talking about is a is a completely it's multiple levels above a weekend film contest with with Manchild, but the the outcome is still the same. I mean, I think people have to decide. Well, what does success mean? You know, what is success? What is the target here? Just getting a movie made is so hard. Well, Nick and I often talk about. We were um, uh, privileged to have the opportunity to uh, sit in on a um, Q and A with Bill Paxton one time, and he was telling a story about working with James Cameron, and he asked James Cameron for some tips on directing because he was getting ready to direct a uh, a film that he was making. And James Cameron said that the first the first thing he said that James Cameron told him was just get it done. That's the best tip I can give you. Just just make the film because that'll put you. Ninety nine percent of people just don't make it. So if you can actually just get something made, uh, that's such a huge accomplishment. And the fact that that both of you have uh, have been able to achieve so much is just it's huge. It's hu- it's hugely inspiring too. I'm sure for your audience as well as uh, as ours. Well, thank you. So uh, hopefully, oh, go no. ahead. I was just going to say, backing up just a little bit, I mean, talking about doing yourself <clears throat> filmmaking and what you guys do with Planet 5D and with No no Film School, respectively, I thought, uh, you know, I know you guys both covered it quite a bit, but, uh, and, you know, Mitch, you touched on it earlier. Um, the What were your guys' overall impressions and takeaways from NAB this year? Because to me, it seems like every year you're seeing tons of exciting 
potentially revolutionary cameras that make do-it-yourself filmmaking accessible. So what are your guys' thoughts on that? I think... Uh, yeah. um, go ahead, go ahead Koo. Wow. <laughs> okay, well, I think, you know, in terms of revolutionary cameras, I think, um, you know, you can talk about the, the Canon 5D Mark II, you can talk about the Canon 7D. Like, those were the first cameras that really... And maybe like the Panasonic DVX100, but those are the cameras that really brought affordable narrative filmmaking tools to a level that DIY filmmakers could use them. And, you know, part of the reason the site, my site is called No Film School is it's because back in the 70s, you, you, one of the main reasons to go to film school was to get access to, to film equipment because you had to shoot on film and that was really expensive and it's not something that someone could go down to Best Buy and buy and just get out there and shoot something and, and work on their, their storytelling abilities. So those cameras really sort of, I think, were the revolutionary tools for DIY filmmakers. And you can look at movies that have been distributed theatrically like uh, Like Crazy, for example, or uh, Rubber, you know, these movies that were shot on those cameras and they look great and, and, and really point to how revolutionary those cameras were. I didn't actually go to this year's NAB because it was at the same time as the Tribeca Film Festival and I'm fortunate enough to be one of the Tribeca All Access grantees this year. So I had a lot of meetings and, and things going on at essentially the same time so I couldn't go to Vegas. But we did send uh, Joe Marine, one of our writers there, and just from, from watching our own coverage and Mitch's coverage and, and sort of keeping tabs on the, the show, I felt like now it's not so much revolutionary for DIY filmmakers, it's, it's more um, bringing those, the large sensor aesthetic to cameras that are, are a bit more practical for real production. So, you, you know, you have better audio, you have better codecs, and so the DSLRs are going to be still very popular, but for filmmakers who are in our boat who want to use a camera that costs less than $10,000, there are more real options there. And I, I don't know if that would be called revolutionary, but... Um, evolutionary maybe. yeah and, and now that you just have real workhorses in that area and and quite frankly now you know if you it helps to not think of a camera as rev revolutionary anymore because now it's the, same, the the playing field is more level and now it just comes down to the same thing it's always come down to which is your writing and your directing and your cast and your storytelling content mitch what do you think what was your takeaway well, i have, have to agree with everything ku said and I think it it really sort of hit home to me how common this is now. All of the gear, I mean, there wasn't anything other than I think the Blackmagic cinema camera. There wasn't anything that was announced that was new that was just blow your socks off. Um, every there there were so many light vendors, so many audio vendors, so many uh, rig vendors that have come up in the last three years that that you can't get away with not making a film now everything's there everything's in place do, do you think that um it seems to me if you examine the landscape over the last few years that the paradigm shift did really happen with the mark ii and then we're now in this phase do, would you agree that it's it's kind of like what you're saying where now it's about perfecting it at the right price point and who's got the best all-over package to for the for the DIY filmmaker, I mean, is that basically your assessment? It's just dialing it yes. in. Yeah, I, everything's there that's in place, and and there's a certain wide range of prices now. Like who said, it used to be hundred thousand dollars that you had to spend a, if you were going to buy a camera, and of course nobody bought at that point. Everybody was renting, so you know things have come down so low, and there's you can get a camera from the 
T2I level, all you know, five hundred dollars, all the way up to ten thousand and twenty thousand, and you know, it's whatever you want to spend at this point. Not to mention, we've we've actually been seeing a lot lately. Um, uh, the GoPro has blown up in the last. It seems like just in the last few months. Um, I don't know if you guys have had any experience with it yet, the little uh, sports camera that's just kind of like been all over the place lately. It seems like a lot of filmmakers are really using that. And at the $199, $299 price point, um, it's it's pretty amazing. I mean, just the, the fact that you can get smaller cameras into weirder places and do things with them that normally you would never be able to do is giving people a lot more creative freedom. Right. Absolutely. And I think the fact that they purchased... Cineform and, and really have a, a pro codec, you know, I'm not privy to any information myself, but you might see them release higher-end cameras for filmmaking going forward, yeah. I, would I would think so. It would make sense, yeah. Do you guys think, this is something that Nick and I often talk about, is that um, how, how young YouTube really is and and how it really wasn't even on the map in 2005 um right since then it's grown almost exponentially well certainly exponentially but do you guys find that with the with the paradigm shift and the price drop for dslr filmmakers and the the available equipment um do do you think there's a glut suddenly of of content out there of just people trying to figure out if they're filmmakers or not and just putting tons and tons of content out there and if so does that amount that sheer volume of stuff that just is out there all the time make promoting your own project uh more or less difficult um what are your thoughts on that well i think it's it's very difficult um sorry ku um and and I think Ku has proved it, and I'm going to try to prove it with the 5D Mark III movie that we shot. Uh, getting your movie seen at this point is difficult. Um, Ku did an amazing job with getting his Kickstarter project. I can't tell you how many people send me an email and say, hey, Mitch, would you help me promote my Kickstarter? And I look at it, and it's been up there for two or three weeks, and they've got $100 out of the 20000 that they're looking for to make their movie. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's really tough to get seen in this market, and that's got goods and bads. I think eventually the good stuff floats to the top somehow, but uh, there are also going to be a lot of filmmakers or potential filmmakers who are going to be frustrated because they can't they can't be seen. Well, I think this is where something like the the GFC comes in, and you know, because there's so much content. It all comes down to filters, and when you, you know, if you think about it like a reverse pyramid, where all there's all this content, and it keeps getting through smaller and smaller levels, to the point where if you're able to win a competition, then you're able to get some credibility, and that helps your resume, and that helps you get your next project made, and so really just you know, the internet is great, and democratization is great, but if you just put something up there and you don't have an audience, it's it's tough to expect. It you know to be viewed or to go viral like you can't expect something to go viral. Um, sometimes it happens and most of the time it doesn't. But um, right. something like the GFC, you know, you have judges. There's a there's a prize. There's a competition. And if you win that, uh, it can really help you along in your career. And just me personally, um, you know, you mentioned that YouTube started in 2005. I had actually one of the first things I did was when I was in school, I shot a music video and there was a, a site. At the time, it was called First Eye, and it was you know vying to be a, a, an early YouTube essentially. And I just shot this music video with some college buddies and, and submitted it to their contest uh, and won grand prize. And the grand prize was a four thousand dollar video camera, which I then used to shoot a lot of successive 
projects, which also won some awards. And so really just winning a competition at, in the early stages of my career and, and having access to some equipment really just sort of, you know, helped me along the way. Well, and, and that's, you know, exactly what the, the GFC is like. Well, and for us, I mean, that's always what it's been about. I, you know, Clint always says this, and I, I think it's accurate, is that, you know, we always find that filmmakers, really artists of any type, creatives at any point, whether they be musicians or visual artists or filmmakers, they're usually looking for one of their three things. <clears throat> they're looking for money because they need to, be able to eat and fund their work and have the ability to work on the next project. They're looking for recognition or an audience, you know, and, and, you know, the best shot thing in the world, if you can't get it in front of people, it doesn't really matter. You know, I mean, it matters to you, but it doesn't help you in your career. And they're looking for that next step. And so that's one of the things we're trying to do, uh, you know, with the GFC is make sure that if we can address all three of those things um, in any way, you know, we're pushing on, you know, one of them, you know, we're pushing on all three of those to, to make those even bigger and better year after year. Um, then, you know, I, I think to go back to Clint's opening point about this, yes, there is a glut of content in a sense, but good t- content is king, you know, and it always will be. And I think if you can produce or supply good content, there's always going to be a place for good storytelling. Actually, uh, Ryan, really quick, uh, touching on that, you, you mentioned Tribeca. Knowing what you know about do-it-yourself filmmaking and you know, you said you were doing meetings and stuff like that, and obviously Tribeca tends to be more your traditional story-oriented film festival. How do you see that convergence playing out as, you know, as a writer and these new tools that you have? How do you see that helping you in, in the storytelling area? Well, you know, it, it's it's been a really interesting last 10 days because, as you mentioned, we all need to eat. And a lot of the people that when you go through an industry program like Tribeca, um, a lot of the people you're going to meet with are, you know, actually eating food. And therefore, they're making projects at a budget level that's above what I am accustomed to or what I was thinking of for this project. And we're talking about, you know, a $3 million movie or with... with name actors in it and I really wrote Manchild to be a fairly small movie and a fairly quiet movie and not something that's going to have stars in it and um, you know Tribeca was an amazing experience and all the people at at All Access have been immeasurably uh, wonderful and helpful and, and I've learned a lot from it but you know I think really when it comes down to DIY filmmaking it, it's the same thing that you were quoting James Cameron on which is you know, eventually you're going to find a way just to just to make it and get it done. And the way that the independent film industry works, it's still an industry. It's very much like Hollywood in terms of you could be looking for packaging and looking for stars and looking for commitments and waiting for financing to come through, and you could be in that boat for years. So, you know, the great promise of DIY filmmaking, and you see this at Sundance every year when some movie gets in that, you know, was made for nothing, going all the way back to something like, Shane Carew's primer um, is that you you can sort of get past these obstacles because movie making isn't nearly as expensive as it used to be and so I'm sort of in this boat of looking at these different options and and I think eventually um, you know there will come a point in time where I will say okay if it's not happening by this date then I'm just going to find a way to go and make it with what I've already raised and regardless of who tells me it can't be done for that and whatever cast we can get because you know I 
I've spent four years not getting a feature film made, and I don't want that to be <laughs> eight years. You know, I want to. Uh, that's that's a really great point, and I want to actually expand on that for a second and, and um, pick your brains about that a little more. Uh, Mitch, I'll start with you, and then when you're done, uh, Ku, I'd love to get your thoughts on this as well. You, you're, you're talking about the landscape having kind of shifted a little bit, and uh, and and to go back to days of yore, uh, it used to be you worked the festival circuit. And then hopefully you would uh, get distribution deals that way. But with with the internet being such a, a core part of a filmmaker's life now, at, to get a project actually picked up and moved forward, what is that roadmap these days? Has it changed? Is it still work the circuit and, and get your work seen by the right people? Or are there other paths to success? If, if distribution is the goal, kind of... W- What's the roadmap? What does it look like for the for a young filmmaker trying to get started today? I think the sorry, Koo. <laughs> no, no, no. Hey, go ahead. <laughs> um, the landscape is wide open. Uh, there, the traditional routes that we're talking about are still there, but there's also the additional options of self promotion. Um, uh, Koo just mentioned the movie, and all of a sudden my brain's gone blank. The one that went through iTunes and sold, I don't know, $400,000, $300,000 through iTunes. You can self-distribute now. How well that market's going to work out is is totally wide open. But you, you still have the issues that you have to decide early on. Well, if I'm going to go the film, uh, the... the God, my brain's suddenly not working. If I'm going to go the route of the... Uh, contest what's the right word sorry film festivals festivals thank you gosh um you know you have to agree to not show your movie anywhere which is really tough to handle mentally because you want people to see it you want to know if it's good um and so if you go the self-distribution route you 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 lose the ability to somehow distribute through those traditional methods but maybe you feel better in the long run and maybe you get more success by getting people to see it long before it would have gone through the regular routes yeah absolutely and that's definitely something that that i'm you know faced with in terms of thinking about man child which is a movie about basketball which i think would really find an audience um in the digital landscape you know i think it'll be a movie that when it does come out, however it comes out, it would be something that would be pretty popular on BitTorrent. And so therefore, you have to find the ways to make it the most accessible via legitimate means online and not, you know, only have it in theaters, and, and which would just encourage people to, to watch it for free on their laptops. But I think the role of festivals uh, is going to change and has been changing a lot, just in terms of they're still going to get you the legitimacy and the credibility of getting into something like Sundance or Tribeca or Khan, you know, it still shows you that it, it'll still speak to the audience and say, Hey, this is the best of the best. This is the cream of the crop. And those laurels on the trailer and all that sort of stuff will always help. But you're also seeing festivals get into distribution. You know, Sundance now has Sundance selects where pretty much any movie I think that gets into Sundance has an option to sign a distribution agreement with them, which you'll end up on VOD and several other um, online channels. And so essentially Sundance is becoming a distributor in addition to a festival. And, um, you know, the issue now, I think, is that a lot of times we don't have the transparency about the revenue sharing and how much somebody is making and how much somebody is spending on marketing and what the cut that the filmmaker ends up with. And, you know, 
those kinds of things are, are sort of unknown and um, it's going to be up to somebody to, to, you know, go the route of total and complete digital self-distribution um, and to see how that works. I think uh, the Polish brothers had a movie on iTunes that did really well and that sort of opened up a lot of eyes and that's the kind of thing that, you know, hopefully going forward we'll see more and more. Well, it's also interesting too and I mean, you know, you guys are in your own unique way, each of you building an audience and a following and that makes me think of you know, you touched on it earlier uh, Ryan, uh, about, you know, how part of the No Film School you know, users help fund Manchild, you know, and I think you know, you look at a guy like Kevin Smith and what he did with Red State, and he went the self-distribution route because he had already spent the last 15 years building this huge network of built-in audience. And in, if you get to that point where you have an audience, then it becomes so much easier to dis- self-distribute. The hard part is yeah. building the audience. Well, and I think that, and Nick, you, you raise a really great point, and this is something I've spent a lot of time contemplating and I think I'd like to hear what your guys' uh, your thoughts are but it seems to me that the the new landscape is all about your niche audience it, it's really not about you know there's only so many James Camerons and Ridley Scotts and 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 uh, Steven Spielbergs the 300 million dollar opening weekend let's face facts is not going to be a reality for the majority of filmmakers in the world but if you have a a niche audience of people that follow you around and just really love your work your body of work it's just serving that audience can be an amazing career. I mean, you could make a lifetime uh, of just taking care of those people. And, and certainly Kevin Smith has done that. Quentin Tarantino has had a little more mainstream success. But for a long time, he was the same way. Robert Rodriguez, um, you know, those guys. What do you guys think about that? The idea of a, of a niche audience that may not be, you know, I, I, another example might be the the uh, Browncoats, Firefly uh, fans, and, and Nathan Fillion and... Uh, Joss Whedon's people, but what do you guys think about that? Is that do you agree, or is that um, are we still looking at the goal is to get out there and, and get picked up by Paramount and do something awesome? See, now we're both going to pause. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I I think absolutely. There, we could talk about this for hours. I think. Um, I mean, Ed Burns is a guy that's that's doing a very similar thing. He's built a huge audience, and he's putting up his movies on on iTunes as well. I think if you don't go about getting your own market and and doing social media, posting on Facebook and and wherever, then you're missing the potential of getting yourself known. Um, because, like Ku said. Getting a, vir- a video to go viral these days is not nearly – it's virtually impossible. It's really tough to do. And if you have an audience, then you've got so much better chance. And so the first thing you ought to do is build an audience. I completely agree. Before we, uh, before we wrap up and get you guys out of here, what are uh, – as you know, let's talk about, you know, as GFC judges, you know, we're going to have uh, – films for you to look at what are some of the things you know you guys see a lot of you know self-made dslr films do-it-yourself films what are some of the things you're going to be uh maybe looking to see or uh you know things you're going to be paying special attention to uh can i can i absolutely tweak that question um and then i have to go let my my pug out of his kennel um i'll leave (laughs) you with this and then i'll come back the uh, the question uh I'd, i'd really like to know what do you 
what turns you on as, as, a, as an audience member? What do you look for? And what do you not want to see? What's some stuff that's just like, ugh, been there, done that, don't need to see more of this? What are something that, that is maybe some things that people just worn out things that people do um, that you could live without? I think one of the things that you tend to see a lot with in America at least, where there's this sort of like film school culture, and I'm not trying to rag on film schools at all, but I mean, people who grew up watching a lot of movies, when it comes time to make a movie, a lot of times their first instinct is to essentially make a movie about movies. Um, and whether that be this sort of like self-reflexive thing about, oh, you know, here's a, a movie about the actual production of a film and the behind-the-scenes stuff, or whether that's more like something that's just really treading in genre cliches um i think that's often a mistake that you see and and, and i say this coming from the, the standpoint of the first movie i ever made was about movies so <laughs> i'm speaking from experience but you know really what what i like to see is people telling stories that you haven't seen before and really getting into the life of a character and and, and not sort of trying to emulate hollywood filmmaking but without money you know it's like hollywood does what they do and they do it really well and they have a huge budget and you know don't try to compete with them but but tell an original and a different story and that's really what what i look for mitch what about you i i have to agree again with ku um the thing that bugs me the most and i don't i don't know if it's i've seen too many hollywood movies is that i'm getting really tired of really big action films and I've seen quite a few little films that get sent to me where you know with a lot of action in them and and if it's done well, then it works. but if it's just gore or action for the sake of action and there's no story behind it, then I get really bored really fast. Well, I tend to agree because I think that one of the you know having seen as many films as we have over the years of doing this there's two areas, and don't get me wrong, this is hard. I mean, a 48-hour film is almost like a sketch, you know, an idea of of a larger film. But, you know, so it's hard to say that there's anything as such thing as a bad idea, but that ability to self-edit and not go for the most obvious cliche, just over the years, we've seen that, you know, judges in all the past years, they get, you know, and I think, Ku, you just said it a second ago, if it's ever, if it's exactly like a Hollywood movie, but without all the budget and production values, <laughs> then... oh, I, I can tell you exactly. I mean, the, I, every year, I mean, I, I it, the number of drug deal gone bad movies that come through uh, is just it's it's amazing. Um, and and it's funny because the first movie I ever made was about a drug deal that went bad. So I, I and there too, I know and, how easy and, it is. It's like we've got a briefcase and we have some you know, black suits. The problem is you're all 16 years old. No one buys it. You're, right. you're not a game exactly. Player. Yeah, right. like I if it's if it's a team of 16 year old kids and and we do and there's nothing we have those teams and they're actually some of them turning great films. I'd rather see a movie about them playing their age than a movie about them playing adults because I think it just doesn't always you know unless it's for you know unless there's a reason for it in the story it's going to be hard if it's tongue in cheek yeah I mean it's like but you're not going to make Reservoir Dogs so don't try especially in two days I mean it's probably not going to happen so a better thing to do would be focus more on what you do have at your disposal that's it's a little more that you can do it take the things that you can do really well and blow those away 
instead of try to reach in places that you can't reach. One last thing um, before before we you know get you guys out of here, we 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 got one little announcement we want to go over at the end. Um, but uh, just in addition to what you guys are looking for there, what about things that uh, in your experience, just quick little tidbit advice, whether it be a uh, a pointer or something that you've seen go disastrously wrong on a production you've been involved with to, to look out for? Like if you're like, oh my God, if I only had two days to do this, what would I pay special attention to? Anything like that? I, th- I think One for me, thing- it's always sound. <laughs> Darn it. <laughs> Beat you to That's it, exactly Mitch. what I was going to say. Uh, you know, because audio, audio is amazing. It's hard and we're not shooting on sets. So there's going to be background noise and you may not have a thousand dollar mic and you know it's like it's one of the the biggest challenges of indie filmmaking um but really i think it's fascinating if you take a movie and you you finish the visuals and you finish the color correction and you basically play back it if you play it back with the sound that you have in there your suspension of disbelief is probably not gonna be uh, what what it could be if you go through and you actually take the time to to use a sound effects library and do some foley work and drop down the background noise and really focus on the dialogue and you know do everything you can to to get the sound in as good shape as possible. That is a thing that really, as the final step, can transport the viewer to your world. And so, if you only have forty eight hours and you you're at you know you're forty seven hours in and you haven't touched the sound, um, that's really going to be a, a hard situation to be in so I, you know try to try to get the picture to as good as you can but then you know allow yourself adequate time to, to sweeten the sound and do everything you can to, to, to do that nothing kills a movie like bad sound and mitch since uh, ryan stole your answer what else do you got <laughs> <laughs> gee uh, uh i got nothing well so, i mean <clears throat> sound is really really important to me and i'm having just gone through what ku said uh, on the short that we shot I mean, it's dead on. Sound is is the biggest well, thing for here's, me. Here's another way to, to look at it. What what tips could you offer, having just gone through the process of making your own short? Uh, what tips would you give um, some first time filmmakers who maybe are just doing this for the first time and, and haven't competed under the the time pressure? Uh, things things that you could offer, little pearls of wisdom that you might have, help them out. And it's. <sighs> It's hard to do in a 48-hour film fest, but preparation is it was really the key for us in getting ours done properly. And I, and I know it's really hard to do in such a short time frame, but if you can have some ideas ready, uh, some lights ready, if you've got lights... Yeah, I'm, I'm actually so glad you said that. In the in traditionally, we find that the the filmmakers that do the best are the ones who get <clears throat> who are as maximize their preparation time as much as they can. So things like having all your gear ready to go, not sorting through it at the last minute, uh, right. setting a time table on how long you're going to be scripting, how long you're going to be assigning roles, and actually sticking to a timetable. Uh, one of the things I, I did a blog post on this late, uh, recently is. You know, in the GFC, people tend to wear a lot of hats. So a lot of times your talent, your actors are also your crew. But, you know, with the time-sensitive nature of, of a 48-hour film contest, what happens is, is you know, tempers start to get hot. And <laughs> it's next to impossible to have somebody have an argument and then expect them to be on camera and give a good natural performance. So I recommend that, 
if people are your actors and pulling double duty, do everything you, th- you can to keep them out of conflict with one another because you just won't get good performances. Yeah, I mean, if we weren't talking about a 48-hour film competition, then my number one answer would always be script. But, you know, in, in, a, in only 48 hours, there's only so many revisions and, of, and tweaking of dialogue you can do, and therefore I think there's probably a lot of improvisation and changes that happen on set out of necessity. But um, normally my answer would, would always, 100 times out of 100, be the script. <laughs> so, so guys, before we cut you loose here, uh, two announcements that we have that you're going to be hearing for the first time on, on, on this podcast, which is actually should be pretty cool. One is uh, borrowlenses.com just came on board as a sponsor for us this year, which is really cool. Uh, all Hooray. the teams that uh, participate are going to get a discount promo code. So basically nobody has excuse for bad sound anymore which is nice and the second thing is and you guys are going to be instrumental in this is that we are going to be doing a uh for our first ever uh screening festival at the alamo draft house in austin this year the top films are all going to be uh screened there and you guys as judges are going to have a hand in selecting which films end up there that's great cool so, guys, uh, thank you both very much for joining us today. It was great. Um, really looking forward to, you know, getting you the films. I know uh, it's coming up quick. Uh, really appreciate you taking time. We know you're both really, really busy. So th- thank you so much for sitting down with us today. Glad to be here. Thank you, guys. Looking forward to it.